KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm very glad to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind today. We've got a terrific panel standing by to talk about some good state issues, some national issues. But before we get to the panel and to uh, conversations, uh, I want to point out to everybody, Monday is the deadline for registration in Georgia. If you want to vote in the presidential preference primary on March 24th, uh, you only have until next Monday. You do it in your local communities, in your county Uh, And you can probably easily uh, Google where you need to go for registration. But if you want to check to know whether you are currently registered or if you're one of those people who may have been eliminated from the rolls, we're going to post a link on our social media to the Secretary of State's website where you just plug in your name, basic information, and they'll tell you whether you are registered. And in addition to that, they'll tell you, in fact, what your polling place is uh, where you'll be able to cast your vote on March 24th. So that's our public service announcement for today, uh, March 24th, presidential preference primary, register by Monday. All right, let's go. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us today. Uh, Tuesdays uh, is always fun to have you here, Tamar. Thanks for being here. Except it keeps raining every Tuesday. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what the universe is telling us about my presence on Political Rewind, but it's, it's, it's I thought It's raining mostly every day here, so I don't think you should take it personally. <laughs> uh, across from uh, Tamar, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to GPB News uh, and uh, on Facebook, and you'll see us there, is uh, Karen Owen. Professor of Political Science at West Georgia University. It's good to have you with us again today, Karen. Nice to be here in the morning. Remind us what class you are currently teaching at West Georgia. Right now I'm teaching an undergraduate course, Introduction to Political Science. So it's kind of the first course for our major students. And then um, I'm also teaching a graduate level course in administrative law. We should also say that uh, you're a veteran of Capitol Hill, where you worked in the office of Congressman Nathan Deal back in the day. Yes. I spent almost two years there. Mm-hmm. What was your work up there? I was a legislative assistant oh, okay. for the congressman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, next to uh, Karen is uh, 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 one of our uh, uh, great longtime uh, guests, Leo Smith. How are you, Leo? Doing great. Republican consultant, uh, used to work with the state Republican Party. Now your company is spending a lot of time, you told us the last time you were here, training people on how to use the new voting machines as they go out. We, we got word on Friday that the Secretary of State's office had fulfilled and met its deadline of delivering 75,000 pieces of equipment to uh, counties across the state, and your folks are helping train on how to make those machines work That's right. correct. We've got uh, voter education coordinators all over the state going out from congregations to Kiwanis clubs, making sure that people have access to the new voter machines and that they can get to touch and use them before um, the presidential primary on March 24th. Okay, terrific. Jeremiah Olney is back with us. He's a principal at uh, Paramount Consulting, a political 
consulting firm, which uh, was founded by another great panelist of ours, Theron Johnson. Uh, Jeremiah, what kind of work are you doing right now there? Help help us understand, get a little picture of what's going on with your life right now. I mean, right now it's mostly just spending every day in and out at the Capitol, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., just making sure we keep track of everything that's going on and keeping an eye on everything. You got some big clients down there worried about legislation? Uh, nothing we're terribly worried about now. Oh, okay. It's a good year. Well, a good year. that's a sign that there are things brewing that he is not going to talk about. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, so uh, the legislature is back in session today, uh, tomorrow, after an eight-day break, which the House took. David Ralston said, look, there have been so many changes to what we call the what, what is really what now the supplemental or mid-year budget. And by that, we should say that last session, legislators passed a budget and was signed by Governor Kemp that was uh, goes from July 1st to the fiscal year, July to July. Always, though, the legislature comes back in January and looks at what adjustments need to be made to that budget based on revenue coming in, needs that have come up uh, since the budget was passed. That's traditional. That's standard. It's gotten confused this year uh, because the governor wanted significant cuts in the budget. But but just f- to put it in, in the right framework, this is the current budget they haven't even started working on the the fiscal year budget for next year, what we call the big budget, right? Exactly. And, and you know, right now the, the issue, the governor's office goes to the legislators and says, okay, this is tax revenue for the year. Here's what we've projected. You can only spend this much money. And the problem is the governor is saying we need 4% budget cuts this year. And all of a sudden everyone's freaking out about, you know, whatever pet programs they have and, and what's going to get cut. You know, the governor has his his big priority for the year, a $2,000 teacher pay raise, which is very popular according to a new UGA poll mm-hmm. we saw this morning. Um, but there are other priorities too. You saw Speaker Ralston who wants to do another income tax cut. Um, if I have that right. Another quarter point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, it's a question of, of balancing priorities. Uh, you know, in Washington, where I spent my whole career, they don't have to worry about balancing yep. a budget. They can keep putting it on the credit card. But <laughs> yeah. here, there's so many tough choices. If you want one thing, you're going to have to cut somewhere else. And you're seeing all of that now. Yeah. Um, and I want to and thank you for that. And so let me update you. The Appropriations Committee in the House met at 7 o'clock this morning before the session, which will start at uh, starts at about 10 o'clock uh, usually. Um, and Patricia Murphy, uh, who's a panelist on this show regularly, but is now also uh, working for GPB down at the Capitol as a, a political reporter, sent this update to us as she sat and watched the committee do its work. And I'm going to just go through a few things because I think it'll help our conversation. Uh, Patricia says, to briefly summarize, um, she says, by the way, she would call the uh, the work they were doing surgical, that they literally have been going line by line to look at changes to the governor's budget and that there have been many of them. And now she says, to briefly summarize, the House has added back full or at least partial funding for the governor's cuts to rural health, behavioral health, criminal justice reform, and other priorities. Money has been added back in for the Agricultural Extension Service, accountability courts, training for medical medical residents at the Medical College of Georgia, lab techs at the GBI, state park staffing, and maintenance. And there are a number of other grants that have uh, uh, been put back into play that we can talk about as we go along. And then she said that Terry England, who, of course, is the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, 
has said that the state is still recovering from Hurricane Michael and that it's the ripple effects to the economy that he thinks is why the state has lower revenues, even as the economy is strong. Okay, so, Karen, one of the most important things we hear there is there were a lot of complaints that the governor's budget cuts were hurting rural Georgia, rural health care, that there were problems in terms of the accountability courts, um, other justice reform issues, and apparently the House uh, wants that money back. Well, and I think you're talking about a budget that the legislature passed last year. So Mm -hmm. these were priorities for the legislature then. And even though the governor has asked for these cuts, they're having to negotiate that and work out because these were priorities for them and priorities that they're talking to their voters about in rural Georgia because that coalition matters for the Republican Party in the House. Um, I think that you're, you know, Patricia is very accurate in saying they did go line by line because it matters on those projects for rural health or the accountability courts, because those are the things that voters feel. They see that. If you're talking about state parks, you want people this summer and spring to be going into our state parks. Therefore, you want to make sure that there's adequate facilities for them, and they're not feeling that and saying, hey, what's going on with our state? Um, Jeremiah, I kind of buried the the headline in Hmm. Patricia's reporting uh, because they did, the full committee did, in fact, pass this amended version of the governor's budget. So it now goes to the full house. We expect they got to act pretty quickly because they do have the big budget ahead of them. Their expectation is the whole House can vote on this tomorrow. It goes to the Senate, and then we'll see how Governor Kemp responds. Yeah, I can't imagine he'll respond very well. I mean, that list you just had was exhaustive. I don't know that there was anything on that list that, you know, he didn't try and cut. I think it's funny that they kind of took this very surgical approach when the governor took a very chainsaw approach where he just had 4% across the board, all discretionary spending, cut it. And they said, no, we actually need all of this and this and this and this. And you know what? Actually, we need all of this. So we're going to try and keep as much of it as possible. So I don't know the degree to which they reduced some of those cuts. But I mean, these are all services that impact, you know, rural Georgians, low-income Georgians. They're the ones who really use these things. And to say, we need to cut the budget now so we can cut taxes for essentially the people who don't need it, I think that would not sit well with many of these constituents. One important thing that I want to piggyback off what what Karen was saying is looking at at the funding that they restored based on on Kemp's budget, um, you know, they're, they're restoring programs where kind of the rubber hits the road for a lot of Georgians where they actually touch government. You know, you might not be using assistance like food stamps or something like that, but if you're a middle class family in Georgia, you probably are going to a national park in the mm-hmm. summer. You know, state you, park. you or state park, I'm sorry. You know, you might be eating poultry grown in Georgia and you want to make sure that there's food inspectors. Yeah, they did put sure food safety food. inspections mm-hmm. back in. Those are, those are the ways that, that government touches an average person's life. And those are the things that people notice immediately when that funding is cut. So it's a very important political move what they're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the the headline grabbers, food safety, educators, I mean, those things are not, I mean, he made these promises about education. That area obviously is not getting cut. And of course, things like uh, provision of health care and those kinds of things are going to continue to be in discussion. But you're right. Things that touch people personally in an election year are things that really matter. And think (laughs) about the government shutdown in, in 2013. The first you know, those insane headlines that you saw, all of them had to do with national parks and people trying to get in. Remember the veterans getting wheeled yeah. into the Vietnam Memorial with the blockade. Those are the images that stick into people's minds when they go to the polls. And that's a very important thing if you're a politician. You know, and, that's, oh, and that's why things like some people had questions about why some of the auditors were being cut. And not only the increasing that there's technology now that helps them better administrate the budget process, the revenue process, but also because that's an area that, you know, these are people sitting back in a room somewhere and they don't really 
really touch the general public when they're doing their work. So there's less political impact for cutting an auditor than there is for cutting a state park. Well, I was just going to say, I think the report came out, too, holding to that is where cuts will be seen will be vacant positions that will not be filled in state government. And voters are not going to know about that. It is those things that they are touching or seeing. And And then this election year, Healthcare again is going to be a driving issue. And if you're talking about the rural health care cuts, voters don't want to hear that. They want to know that they have access to some point in their communities. Yeah. So, go ahead, Just Jeremiah. saying that I think cutting government spending, that's a great Republican talking point. It sounds good. Everyone says, oh, great, the government's bloated. That's the sort of stereotype. But then when it actually gets to the time to cut the budget, you realize all the things government spends money on, how many of them you actually use. All right. But they are going to have to find areas. We're talking about... Patricia Murphy giving us a report on what was restored, because that's been the news lately, is what are we going to lose? They've got to find cuts somewhere, and we don't know. We haven't seen the news reporting, and I'm sure our team down there will have it, but they're going to have to make cuts somewhere. It'll be interesting to see where they do it. Yeah, and I think they'll probably be, again, looking through each line of budgets and agencies that maybe don't have positions that need to be filled for a while that they can work on, but things that are not going to affect food inspectors or, you know, have too many. They don't want to have furlough days for those state employees who are going to also want to be voting this coming year. So it'll be careful, I would say, precision in each agency what they can cut. Again, we haven't seen the House budget at this point, but I do want to make one comment based on your uh, mentioning unfilled positions that the governor wants cut out of agencies. The House doesn't want to eliminate many of those unfilled positions, and we'll see if they've been able to save some on the basis that they may in fact be needed at some point down the road. Once you've cut a position, it's gone. And trying to get a line back in the uh, budget, Jeremiah, is very, very difficult. Yeah, and I'd argue that it's not that they're needed some point down the road. They're needed right now. I mean, the state workforce is still, I think, 17,000 people fewer than it was before the high of the Great Recession, like 20% fewer employees than we had previously. And I do think there are a lot of overworked state employees who aren't being paid very much and who would very much like to see those positions filled so that their lives are a little bit easier, not working 8, 10, 12-hour days. So, um, uh, uh, Tamar, uh, of course, we know that Democrats, Georgia Democrats, are working hard, believing they have the chance to take over the House. They've they've got a big job ahead of them. It's going to be tough. What is it? Is it 14 or 16? I always forget the number. I think it's 14. 14. Uh, to, to turn, they've got to flip 14 seats. But... The state Democratic Party is taking advantage of this camp proposal to uh, use it as, as, as campaign fodder. Debbie Buckner, one of the uh, Democratic leaders in the House, they had a news conference. Uh, here's what she said. I think this in many ways epitomizes the message they're going to try to get out. She said, when we look at the cost of these cuts, it isn't so much about dollars and cents. Put quite simply, we need to put our constituents first or they will pay for these cuts dearly many times with their lives. And that's exactly what you were talking about. It's the message that Democrats can get out now is how are Republicans or how is the governor potentially hurting the lives of people in Georgia? Sure. A couple of things. You know, health care was such a winning message for Democrats in, in 2018 after Republicans tried to repeal Obamacare. And so obviously they want to try and seize on that again. Another point I want to make is that it's harder for Democrats to argue against Governor Kemp's top priority right now, which is a $2,000 teacher pay raise. Everyone agrees with that. That UGA poll this morning, it was something like 
I can't even remember, at least 75 percent or some very high percentage of voters agreed with that. So so if you want to drive a wedge or, or you want to show that Democrats are still better than, than Republicans, you're going to have to find another issue that'll be winning for you guys. And, and so health care is a great area to do that. But, you know, OK, so 16, we, 16 seats uh, that we 16, need, yeah, okay. the 180 member yeah, body. I, I've never been very good at math. Right. Uh, <laughs> so so, Leo, um, to give the governor uh, his his due here. He wants to cut $200 million out of the budget. He certainly wants to get the teacher pay raises put in place. And as Tamara's mentioned now, the University of Georgia just dropped a poll this morning, which says that 88 percent of the voters that they talked to said, yes, they support that uh, pay raise for teachers. And three quarters of them said they'd back the plan, even if it meant hiking taxes or cutting other parts of the budget. And we shouldn't forget that all of these plans from the governor in terms of his budget are coming from a guy who now sits at 60% approval in the latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll. So he's not exactly, you know, a weakling in this fight. No, he isn't. <laughs> I, I think the fact that he his private residence is very close to UGA, um, perhaps he's uh, getting the brain trust uh, get, given to him. He's, he's in a good position when it comes to the voters of Georgia just based on that polling. He, I mean, you don't touch the teachers and you don't touch public safety, and he's doing a good job of making those things the uh, uh, the, the sacred uh, the population. All right. Uh, so can I, I? I was just going to say one thing that the Democrats who are are eagerly trying to flip these seats have to think about is one the candidates they run. How do they message their uh, to their constituents in those districts? And then two, who's at the top of the ticket? I mean, we can't forget that the Senate races will matter here in Georgia, and it will matter who is the Democratic nominee for the president because yeah. those will affect those down race ballots are on the ballot. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead, just Jeremiah. One thing I wanted to note real quick is the 60% approval rating. That was in January's poll. The poll this morning is 54%. So yeah, I was just going to mention that, although I'm not, I haven't had a chance, have you, to study the 60% approval rating was in the AJC poll done by UGA. Mm-hmm. I, did they use, we don't know, is it the same polling methodology? Is it the same polling agency? Is it all? I know it's the same polling okay. group. Um, and I think the only thing we've seen in the last month has changed really has been this huge budget fight. So I do think it is taking a toll on Governor Kemp's approval Okay, rating. that may very well be. You may be right about that. About By the way, uh, that poll today says that 58% of Democrats give him negative reviews, but um, one-third of independents and 86% of Republicans approve. One-third of independents is a good sign for the governor. Yeah, absolutely. That that they make up that 86%, a third of them. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. definitely. All right. Um, all right, let's do this. Let Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way? Tom Faust and Sam are up there like, yeah, nodding, do it already. <laughs> We're going to take a break. We'll come back and uh, move on to other issues uh, with the legislature and beyond. This is Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Karen Owen, Leo Smith, Jeremiah Olney, Tamar Hellerman in the studio with me today. Uh, all right, uh, Tamar, there, is all the, there are all these rumblings that now that the legislature is back in session, we may see a sports betting bill uh, emerge as soon as this week. Now, I wish I knew exactly what that meant, who's going to sponsor it and that sort of thing, but there's no question that we've got the four major professional sports teams here pushing hard for it. In fact, let, let me do this before we talk about it, and then I'll give you a chance tomorrow and everybody else. Um, 
We talked to Steve Coonan, who is the president and CEO of the Hawks, and Derek Schiller, president and CEO of the Atlanta Braves, who were in the studio with us a couple weeks ago. Let's just listen to a little bit of what they said about their bill, starting with Steve Coonan. In Georgia, we're estimated to have a $1.5 billion untaxed, unregulated gambling industry. And the four teams felt that by working together, we could speak with one voice and create an opportunity to both educate and excite Georgians on um, the opportunity of sports wagering. So that's Steve Coonan. Um, Derek Schiller was with him in the studio. Let's listen to him. What we're specifically advocating for is just mobile sports betting. Right. And we can get into, you know, why we say mobile, for instance, in, in, a, in a minute here. But in our particular case, what we believe is happening, and Steve mentioned it, is that it's already going on, right? And so we're not necessarily creating something that's not already here. You're basically trying to regulate an industry that is already happening and taking it out of the shadows, out of the corners, bring it into that sunlight as Steve talked about, and, and really trying to put some regulation behind it. So, tomorrow they've got their talking points. They've got what they think of as pretty powerful arguments for why this should move forward. And, and I think they believe that sports betting, uh, you've got the possibility of sports betting coming up this session. Um, uh, Brandon Beach up in Alpharetta has been mm-hmm. pushing, you know, paramutual wagering, horse racing for a mm-hmm. long time. And then the casino uh, lobby is still at work down at the Capitol. But I think the sports teams believe that sports betting may be the easiest bill to pass this session, in part because Tennessee now has sports betting, Kentucky just passed sports betting, and as Coonan points out, there's already a lot of sports betting going on here. Yeah, and they've talked about using potentially revenue from that to help fund the Hope Scholarship, so it'll be interesting to see how the legislature um, takes it up, because on, on the one hand, you, you listen to the heads of these sports teams, and, and they mention they think it's a way to get younger generations more into sports. I guess attendance has been down, which kind of surprises me. Uh, But they're saying, you know, especially for kids who are used to having their cell phone everywhere, it's a way you can bet on even who throws the next touchdown, not even just who wins the game. But then it's interesting. You have lobbyists on the other side, you know, social conservatives who who are nervous about kind of the underworld that also tends to be associated with gambling. It could lead to a breakdown of families, people going into debt, all sorts of stuff. Um, Jeremiah, I do have to say, you know, Tamara just made a point that that, that Schiller and, and Kuhnen did talk about, this notion of attracting younger people to their sports. Mm-hmm. There may be an awful lot of good reasons why sports betting should be uh, put into place here. That's up to the legislature, then maybe voters if it becomes a referendum to mm-hmm. decide. I, I find it hard to understand why they believe that, it's, that, that it, the legislature should help them attract fans to their sports, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, it might just be a matter of sort of increasing the base. I mean, as a young person who has no interest in sports whatsoever, um, I walked into a Super Bowl party a few weeks ago and said, so who's playing today? Uh, <laughs> um, I think there are just so many other outlets now, you know, between video games and streaming and movies. Like, I can see why the sports industry is trying to create these sort of other avenues to increase engagement, because it's one thing to watch a sports, another thing to have a personal 
stake in what's happening. And I think it's kind of harder to create that. I don't know whether it's a good idea to try and create that or not, but I mean, I can see why they might think it it's would all, increase all, revenue. I mean, look, in, in anything when it comes to political advocacy, especially policy advocacy, is if you say it's for the children, you are already ahead of the game. So, you know, my son, who was four years old when he first watched a movie that I would not otherwise allow him to watch, Moneyball, which is a baseball <laughs> stats game, he was not interested in sports until he uh, watched Moneyball, saw the probability and all this sort of thing, and that changed his whole... Now he's a big baseball player and he's a big baseball fan and he's a math whiz too. So they may be on to something if they use that language and they say it's for education to support education, pre through K or something like that. You got to have a cause when it comes to dealing with something that is sort of like a, as a Southerner would say, a deal with the devil, like gambling. So you got these three interest groups, you know, the casino interest group, you've got the paramutual interest group with Brandon B and some chamber people in, in North uh, Georgia and the horse areas. Um, and then you've got the sports bettis, betting. The winning formula is going to be those people getting together and coming up with a common cause like education funding and, and making sure that the Georgians know that we just want you to make a decision for yourself. We want a referendum that lets you decide. That's going to be the winning formula. So, so Karen, uh, the sports betting advocates have a couple of arguments that they think really are, are winning arguments. Casinos involve a big piece of infrastructure, a big hulking building that'll sit somewhere, say, in downtown Atlanta, becomes a symbol of, uh, of, uh, of what, what the opponents would say is vice and corruption. And that sort of, sports betting is virtually invisible. It's on your, as they pointed out, we want mobile sports betting. It's on your phone. Uh, people can do it so easily. There's not a big target out there. I mean, that is an argument that it, it's, it's one of the lesser arguments, but it is an argument that's being made about it. Yes, and I think, you know, part of that argument, too, is getting to the young generation because they are so ingrained to be playing on their phones and 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 having that device seen. I think interesting is, you know, Leo mentions the three coming together and if they can actually sell it to a point of a policy where it's tied to education, yes. But think about the demographics in Georgia. Older people vote more. Do they even know what sports betting really looks like, right? Is that going to be explained well to them when, if it does pass through the legislature and why it needs to be regulated and how it will um, potentially help maybe their grandchildren who are in school or going to college, whereas young people may be really excited about it, but are they going to turn out to vote? And so I think the legislature has to balance who's really interested and then all the different groups that are going to say the supporting or the opposing arguments on it. So I go back and remember when Governor Zell Miller uh, passed uh, the lottery through the legislature and it came up as a referendum. By the way, there are people who believe that sports betting doesn't necessarily need a referendum. I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Gambling, I mean, horse race betting and and casinos would. Um, but Miller's reelection was a hard-fought battle. He had a harder time winning re-election than I think anyone expected because there was such fierce opposition when he did put uh, Jeremiah, the uh, lottery, in place here. 
And I think it's times have changed a little bit. I think people are a little bit less sort of puritanical about the sort of moral degradation of the state if we introduce something like you gambling. haven't talked to Virginia Galloway of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid she's not on my speed dial, believe it or not. Um, no, I think we're kind of in a different place now in sports betting, especially. I do. I am looking forward to Republicans going out and saying we need more government regulation. That's not a messaging point I'm used to them going out with, but they're saying we need to regulate this industry to bring in more taxes. I think that could be a winning message if they say we'll direct these things towards initiatives that are popular, like scholarships. Specifically, I'd like to see a need-based scholarship come out of this. If that's the case, a bit more of an increase in funding for that. Um, but I think they are going to have to make a good case for how this money is going to be spent for it to be a reasonably popular initiative. All right. Well, we're going to watch tomorrow. I mean, we're getting well on into the session now. Um, so let's see what happens. Somebody's going to drop this bill, I assume, and we'll take a look at how it plays out and talk about it on Political Rewind again. Yeah, the, the heads of the sports teams were a little bit cagey about who would be dropping the bill yeah, and what that would exactly happen. Right. But, but crossover day is going to be in late March, mid-late March sometimes. Some, so there's not a ton yeah, of time. Yeah, March 12th, I think. They don't hit well. That's but even less counting? time. Yeah, 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 Are yeah. you guys still involved in with casino? You still have casino? Uh, we do not. You got out of it. Now, see, that's interesting because I think Theron Johnson at one point when the casino bill first came up mm -hmm. decided he wanted to work for for one of the, the the firms that was hoping to bring casinos here. But you guys have gotten out of that business apparently. Right. We have no casino clients oh, at the moment. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And what I've noticed, the firms, uh, you know, they made their investment in the first few consultants and the, a lot of the companies, MGM, you know, all of those guys have kind of backed off a little bit and they're just trying to wait and see how this plays out. All right. Um We'll see how, exactly that, how it uh, plays out. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, an issue that came up on the show yesterday that I got some pushback on, uh, and maybe for good reason. And uh, I know that Jim Galloway, who was with us yesterday, got the same feedback I did from the Teresa Tomlinson campaign. Um, we, we said yesterday that Tomlinson, at an event it, in, in Atlanta at Pascal's Restaurant, an event that, where she was trying to rally African-American support, um, and she did have Andy Young with her, who's a pretty good guy to try to use uh, uh, to accomplish that. He's supporting her campaign. Um, we, we said that it was our understanding that one of the comments that she made was that she felt she could reach voters in rural parts of Georgia who otherwise were supporters of Donald Trump and, and convert them. Um, so we got pushback. Nicole Henderson, her communications director, sent a note, and she said this. I want to give them their fair due. She said that Tomlinson's message is, number one, she's going to carry Atlanta, she says, uh, uh, as, as they call them, loud and proud Democrat. She's a loud and proud Democrat who was raised in Atlanta. She feels she can uh, do well in, in the Atlanta metro area. And then she intends to go out and get def Democratic, African-American, and minority voters in the 50 counties of central Georgia, Columbus area, um, where she is very well known. Um, so they talk about those things. They, they claim that she never has said that she wants to try to convert Trump voters. And in fact, let's listen to just a little bit of her talk at Pascal's the other day. They can call me a socialist, and when they do that, they will be lying to the people of Central South Georgia because I am here to tell you something. The people of South, Central South Georgia, they know the mayor of Columbus, Georgia, and they know it is impossible that the people of Columbus, Georgia twice elected a socialist mayor. <laughs> that did not happen. He can save his breath. So we're going to go get those voters in Central Georgia, tens of thousands of voters just waiting for someone who shows the respect for their journey 
and a real knowledge of their community. So, Tamar, she's used that line before. Uh, you don't get elected mayor of Columbus as a socialist. Uh, it's a good line. Uh, and and I think we—I'm I, 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 not quite sure completely yet— um, whether or not she does also think that there are white voters out there in rural Georgia who might be open to a Democrat after having supported Trump. But but but, but apparently your campaign is saying we got that. I got that wrong yesterday. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the, the voting numbers from the last couple of years and especially in Georgia, it really has broken down so much along racial lines. Of course, there's crossover now, but it's, it's harder and harder for for Democrats to capture a lot of the white support. But uh, going off her point about Columbus not electing a, a socialist mayor, that that goes exactly to David Perdue's messaging, this whole campaign, where all he's talking about, you know, he's not mentioning particular opponents by name, but all the time talking about the threat of socialism and what that means to the American way of life. So she's directly kind of attacking that message of his. So Jeremiah, uh, we've got Tomlinson. We talked about mm-hmm. her yesterday, uh, but of course she's not unposed. She's got Sarah Rigsamico. Uh, in there, John Ossoff in there. How? Give us your sense uh, as a Democratic strategist how that race is shaping up right now. I mean, right now, I think it's still wide open. We're still about, I guess, three months out from the primary. They've all had respectable fundraising numbers uh, in every quarter since they've announced their races. Well, uh, respectable is an interesting term. Not yeah. big, big numbers. I mean, no, I think it's a lot harder to compete with an incumbent like David Perdue, yeah, who also right. has a lot of his own independent fortune that he can pour in if he wants to. And there's the whole sort of Republican messaging machine that comes straight from Trump down that says Democrats are socialist, socialist, socialist. They have very good messaging discipline on that point. But I think all three candidates have kind of distinguished themselves and said, we are, you know, Georgia Democrats. This is what we believe. Like Teresa Tomlinson, I'm a Columbus, Georgia mayor. I've been elected twice. Like, that's not who I am. I think they're all kind of trying to shape a message. They say, we are these individuals. And I think to their credit, they're not really going after each other which yeah. I appreciate. I mean, they're still targeting all their messages at Purdue, at Trump, saying we're going against the Republican Party. We're not trying to tear each other down. We're trying to, you know, win this race no matter who gets nominated. There's still, there's still time. Oh. There's still a lot. <laughs> Karen, I'm an optimist. How, how do you see, I mean, we've talked about it on the show it, it, a couple of times now that, that, that unfortunately for those three, particularly in the Purdue race, um, there's not a lot of oxygen, political oxygen for them right now, except as they do their own individual campaign events. Well, and I think it's very important that they are messaging to voters that they think are very important that will turn out for the Democratic primary and that they're not attacking each other, staying positive, because I think they know a brutal battle is coming once the uh, primary is over and the general election comes. There's going to be a lot of money that will then come to that prospective uh, nominee, whoever it is. And, you know, you know, the comments about um, Tomlinson. So she is in a unique position that she's not a Metro Atlanta candidate. She is from Columbus. So she she can talk to those other communities in the state. It will be interesting if she starts to have a message that maybe resonates with women in South Georgia. Can she kind of talk to them and and peel apart some of their angst against what Trump might be saying? Now, whether they'll turn out to vote in the primary, I don't know. But I think she can message to that to resonate some more along outside of the metro bubble. Well, she sees herself, Leo, as being able to be both, having grown up in metro Atlanta, in metro Atlanta, being able to play to this crowd and as well the central Georgia folks who watched her as mayor of Columbus and perhaps reaching out to women in South Georgia. Right. And I was wondering, uh, Professor and Tamar, you from a national perspective, you know, when you look at the down, down ballot impact of the presidential um, race, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, the you know, self-described socialist in the campaign, 
He's well, well, got pretty social good, democratic, democratic socialist, right? Democratic. I mean, socialist. as long as we're going to well, say what he calls him. himself, right. let's really say what he Absolutely. calls himself. Absolutely, he calls himself democratic <laughs> socialist, and I, I do believe that he's true to that. As a matter of fact, and, and, but you know, so he's the one that carries that badge. I think what Tomlinson has to be careful. Because she's at Pascal's, which is a black middle class elite sort of establishment. You see the picture of Barack Obama in the background. They are the black elite professionals at the, those meetings. But black people do. They're the most. The second most popular presidential candidate is Sanders with African Americans at this point. So it's not like they absolutely reject the ideas of democratic socialism. They don't. Most black intellectuals, uh, Cornel West, Michael Eric Dyson, they call themselves democratic socialists. So she's got she's got to be careful. And then you had Mother Jones back in 2019. Kiera Butler wrote an article about her Republican background and why she be Mother Jones saying Republican background would make her a good candidate. I mean, so. She's in a really, really interesting position. I mean, she's got uh, Jeremiah Andrew Young is uh, is one of her biggest endorsers. I mean, he certainly plays beyond across all uh, lines of, of stratus of black society in the state. Right, and I think as we have, you know, three white candidates running in the primary for that race, and I think it's very important you have sort of surrogates like that to say, you know, they do understand what's going on and. I think when it gets to sort of the point of democratic socialism, there is a fine line to walk there. It may still be a bit of a toxic label right now, but if you kind of just present the ideas of it without getting into the labels, people say, oh, yeah, everyone should have health care. We should have a better social safety net. And as long as you don't put the name on it, people actually generally agree with a lot I, of those I think tenets. President Trump may be putting the name on that from now until uh, November's election. <laughs> Mark, you wanted to weigh in? Yeah, I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier with the political oxygen. Sure. Because the, the primaries in May, which is two months after the presidential primary here in Georgia, you know, not only do they have to appeal to all these different groups, they have to convince these people to come out of their houses and vote again. It's not like they can piggyback as easily in May off of these presidential candidates. So you have to be inspiring enough to get people out there. And, and, you know, the other, the other Senate race, Senate race two with Kelly Leffler, there isn't a primary to kind of draw people there. So you have to go above and beyond just getting voters to be okay with you. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. Got a lot to talk about still. By the way, Councilman Khalid, who I know is a, a listener to this show pretty regularly, sent a tweet when we were talking about sports betting. He said, will we be allowed to do mobile sports betting on this Democratic primary? I don't <laughs> think it will be in place in time for you, Councilman mm-hmm. Khalid. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Uh, Karen Owen, last week, the White House announced that President Trump was going to uh, take another $3.8 billion out of the defense budget uh, to devote to building new sections of his wall. Clearly, that's an important issue for the president who wants to be able to talk about it in a re-election campaign. But we've uh, subsequently learned, thanks to Tia Mitchell, who's the now the Tamar Hallerman in Washington, <laughs> she's now the Washington correspondent for the AJC, that um, this could have an impact on Georgia in terms of the spending here. Uh, it, it, one of the cuts to pay for the, the wall money is a reduction in the order for the C-130 cargo aircraft, which has been built in Marietta for a very long time now, is a big employer up there. They're going to make fewer uh, F-35 stealth fighters, and Georgia does production on parts for that. And then overall, there's going to be a $1.5 billion reduction 
in uh, spending that would go to National Guards across the country to pay for equipment upgrades that they need. And what's fascinating is here in Georgia, Barry Loudermilk, who represents that area up there by Dobbins Air Force Base, is saying, I'm talking to the White House. we got to figure a way around this. So I think this gets into the president's priority. So President Trump has run on this about money to the wall. And there would be pulling from the defense. And then this is your congressional relationship. So Barry Laudermilk is going to spend time. I noticed at the end of the State of the Union address, Barry Laudermilk was standing at the door when the president walked out and right. shook his hand. So it is, you know, a relationship that he's built. He wants to capitalize on that and have conversations because this matters for his constituency. But other members of Congress, Republicans who have a you know, the ear to the White House, they're also going to be talking about these military installations. I don't know that the president will back down, that he will, you know, hold this money back for people who are talking to him. But I think for the congressmen, it's about messaging, letting their constituents know that they are talking to the White House and they're trying, and they're trying to protect them. How does David Perdue handle something like this, Leo? Well, I think that what they'll do is, as you said, this is another messaging opportunity that the Democrats, they'll say that the Democrats did not um, work with the president on funding the wall appropriately. Yeah, they're so already saying these that. Hard decisions. Perdue has so already what, said and, that. And, and as, an, as, as a congressman, you want to make sure that your constituents know the pain. The pain is this this heralded Herculean C-130 that's so important to Lockheed and the surrounding uh, economy that that thing's at risk. So now that puts pressure back on um, you know the Democrats to, to 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 work with us. So I think that they're feeling Purdue and others are feeling like, look, we've got a pretty good relationship with the president. Um, we are part of his fan club and we have influence. And so, so they, they, I think they're going to work it out, Jeremiah. I think that trying to turn this against Democrats is something of a bank shot for Republicans like Purdue. I mean, it, you can say that. You can say, you know, if the Democrats had come to the table and had put more money into wall funding, as Leo suggests, uh, you can make that argument. But again, to me, that's an indirect way to approach this thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's going to work either. I mean, Trump isn't a king. He doesn't get to unilaterally decree what to put in his budget. And if we, if Congress says no, which is their, you know, constitutionally appointed power, then they're allowed to say no. Trump doesn't get to say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, although that's exactly well, what he's he doing. Well, but he has said that I know he so is far, anyway. the courts have not <laughs> shut, shut him down. Not I yet. mean, they, that may be coming still. And hopefully it is. But I don't think Democrats will lose on the message of we don't support building President Trump's wall. Like, we also aren't going to budge on, like, funding more children in cages. And I don't think that's a losing messaging point either. Tomorrow? <laughs> Two things. Um, I remember writing about this last year when, when the issue first popped up about the president moving money around for this. And I will say these cuts, if they do end up going through at the end of the day, they're still not as severe as I guess it could have been much worse for Georgia. There could have been specific projects at Georgia military bases, which was what I was watching last year mm. that could have been cut upgrades, new roads, new buildings, new new towers and stuff that could have been cut. It, it's still kind of hard to figure out if they are going to delay construction of some of these F-35s, how much of that would actually trickle down to Marietta. So it's a little more muddied. And that that could help somebody like Barry Loudermilk, who's, of course, a steadfast supporter of the president. You don't really know what that's going to look like locally. And, and you talk to the White House about stuff like this, and they say, 
the F-35 is still a huge priority for us. We're just going to do it a little bit later, yeah, a couple yeah. months later, a year later. We're not canceling this. Yeah, the election's so, in November of 2020. And so they can say, <laughs> you know, we still believe in this. This is just, you know, the wall is our top campaign priority. Yeah. So there, there's ways to kind of muddle around yeah, this. Yeah, I think that's really a, a good point. Here's what's interesting to me about this, Karen. Um, Barry Loudermilk spoke out immediately about this, wants to save the funding. Um, David Perdue's spokespeople very quickly had an answer. Democrats should have stepped up. Uh, Senator Leffler is still weighing the question. And and that's fine. She absolutely has the right to do that. But it strikes me that is interesting because it's one of these areas where Leffler and her team have to think through the implications of what she says. David Perdue's, he's been in the Senate for, you know, five years now. He's he's an established uh, character out there. She's still finding her way and still trying to define herself. I think part of it is defining. Part of it is understanding the issue and the position she needs to take. Also, where does she stand with the president? So, you know, with all the jockeying going on about will there be something? Will he work out something between her and Collins? I think she has to be careful how she says. Does she support Georgia? Yes. Will she make sure that there's protection? But how does she message that to where it's not against anything the president might be thinking or wanting? This is where I think she goes down to the barbershop on uh, Northside Drive in West Paces where Johnny Eisenson gets his hair cut and yeah. see if she can get a moment with him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on. Uh, let's talk a little presidential politics. We also already sort of talked a bit about a, a new poll that NPR uh, released along with PBS NewsHour. It's a Marist poll. Marist is good reputation for being a solid pollster. And and let me go over the numbers just very quickly. And I'm going to talk about them specifically in terms of what it means in terms of uh, Michael Bloomberg and a big event in his campaign life coming up tomorrow. So uh, the uh, NPR poll says that uh, Bernie Sanders is at 31%. That's a 9% increase in just two months. The last time they polled was in December. Michael Bloomberg is in second place. His increase is 15 points since December. Biden, I said this before, has lost nine points and is in third place. And it goes down from there. Uh, Just, you know, Pete Buttigieg, who's kind of the flavor of the hour for the Democrats, uh, he lost of five points in the polling between December and February, which is sort of odd. I'm a little, I'm not quite sure how Marist has a quite different take than I think a lot of the other polling, which shows him moving up tomorrow. Yeah, you'd think momentum from Iowa and and New Hampshire would have helped him a little more. I'm not sure. The 538 uh, folks say that um, they can find no momentum coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire for the most part, which is interesting. But that's another matter. Well, I think that part of that is on Buttigieg is that people are calculating. They're looking forward. They're going Nevada. Um, Latinos, uh, African-Americans, and then they're looking at South Carolina and they're going, Buttigieg doesn't stand a chance. Democrat um, voters now, they are being very shrewd. I mean, they are very calculating. They're looking at every measure, every poll, every result, and they are really, really hearing people say South Carolina and Nevada is hugely important. Okay. Um, 
Jeremiah, your take on this? Well, I mean, I think this is the problem with having the first two primaries in the country being Iowa and New Hampshire, two states which are 85, 90 plus percent white. They don't really represent the electorate of the country or and they even less represent the electorate of the Democratic Party. I mean, I don't think we can really we have to take those results with a grain of salt. I think it's coming to South Carolina and the South and Georgia. There was that great article a couple of weeks ago about how Georgia would make a lot of sense as being the first state in the country to run its primaries. Mm. And I think that's very much the case because we have a real sense of the mood of the Democratic electorate, whereas from Iowa, New Hampshire, we don't really get that. Yeah, the TV stations would like that. They'd make a lot of money. (laughs) Karen, okay, so I said before, I kind of teased it. What this poll means is that Michael Bloomberg will be on the stage when Democratic presidential candidates meet in debate in Nevada tomorrow night. It is obviously his first time on the stage. And it's especially interesting because his rise in the polls is all about people getting to know him as a character in some of the best TV political advertising any of us have ever seen. Tomorrow, it's a different story. Yes, I was going to say, and he has been able to control that messaging through his ads. And people are getting uh, are aware of him. He also has not had to have anyone attack him or come after any type of record. And you put him on the debate stage, those other candidates now have an opportunity to question or, or raise some t- different points of how he handles situations as mayor, and he'll have to answer those. And the voters will see how he can, on his stage, answer questions and talk about policy. All I can say is Bloomberg is very lucky that the quote-unquote per Bloomberg well-spoken Cory Booker is not on that stage because that would be some fireworks between the two of them. They don't uh, really like each other that much. and So Bloomberg's in a good position that some of the people of color are all gone. Um, and so it, that the issues that he's having to face mostly are these issues of the st- illegal stop and frisk, um, the issues of, of, of redlining, of redlining yeah. the Central Park Five, all those issues. I think the other people will be a little nicer um, then, then, because they don't want the attacks zooming you back know, at them. I, okay, so tomorrow, I, let me just throw out a different idea about this. Michael Bloomberg was elected mayor of New York three times. He did a lot of debates in those three uh, races for election. I know people think he is not great on the stump. He's not a great retail politician. There are people now putting together clip reels of how he hasn't performed as well as expectations maybe are of what he does on a debate stage. He's won three elections. I mean, I don't think I think it would be a mistake to assume we're going to see this raw and unpolished and unsophisticated character standing up there tomorrow night. Sure. And he has some of the best campaign staff money. can yeah. buy. So I'm sure he's not going to come up there completely, yeah. you know, with, with nothing. What I'm going to be curious to watch is is how much Joe Biden goes on the offensive, because in because in theory, they're kind of competing for the same voters. And and Bloomberg is trying to take this mantle that that Biden has, has had kind of more toward the middle. And I'll, I'll be curious to see how aggressive Biden is to try and reclaim that that momentum. Jeremiah, one of the things that will be interesting to watch is since this is the first chance we're going to get to see Bloomberg in a debate, not the last, but our first chance, if, if his performance falters, as some people think it will, if he's attacked and can't respond, we now have some pretty prominent Georgians who have aligned with him and I don't think they've necessarily talked to him. Michael Thurman on this show Friday said he was on the verge of endorsing Bloomberg, but before he does, he wants to look him in the eye, talk to him personally. I think people like Jen Jordan see him f- from slightly from a distance. Tomorrow night, they better be sure they've seen a candidate who they really are glad they're supporting. Right. I think for sort of the people who are looking at uh, 
supporting him and endorsing him, like some of the political figures who are very ingrained in this process, I think it will make a big difference. But for people who are going to show up and vote, I mean, we've had, I've lost track of how many Democratic debates we've had. I know we've got two more this month. I think a lot of people are a little burned out on the debates, yeah. whereas they don't really have a choice but to watch the Bloomberg ads on TV, on their computers, um, in their dreams, maybe. I don't know what kind of technology they're working on right now. <laughs> um, I think that's still going to have the most impact, unless there's some sort of major misstep Right now, like Bloomberg, I don't think has a lot to worry about at the debate tomorrow. I think that's a really interesting point, Karen. I think you're right that he, you know, has the capability of messaging and that if he stumbles a little bit, he can counterback that somehow or counteract that. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see the dynamic play between Mayor Pete and Mayor Bloomberg. Right. So you have two different demographic and ages, their experience, the size of their cities, and will that be called into question? Like, how can they talk about how they have operated and run a city? Um, and will they have differing answers about how they can then go up against Trump um, after his policies? And New York's only a little bit bigger than South Bend, so I think we'll be <laughs> yeah. all right. Okay. All right. We, are, we are out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Thank you for a, a terrific conversation, Karen Owen, Leo Smith, uh, Jeremiah Olney and Tamar Hallerman, I appreciate your being here. We, of course, are going to be back uh, on the air for the rest of this week because, as you know, we're now on Monday through Friday, 9 a.m., 2 p.m., 7 p.m. Friday nights on GPB TV. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you again. again.